Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing the stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Stephanie Jabauer, here with my favorite co-host, Deaconess Dr. Tiffany Manor. Today, we are bringing you another episode of The Floor is Yours, where we invite a special guest to join us, and they essentially get to take the mic, we give them a topic, and they get to run with it. This guest, dear listeners, is especially dear to me. His name is Pastor Robert Zagor. He has known me since my middle school years and actually is the pastor who confirmed me in my faith in our hometown congregation of Traverse City, Michigan. Pastor Zagor, this is a distinctly Lutheran podcast, Friends for Life, where we focus on, of course, life issues. And we have you on today to offer up a distinctly Lutheran theology, and that is our theology of the cross. And so we're hoping to talk about how we as Lutherans approach life issues in light of the cross, the cross, of course, where Christ's glory was revealed then and is still revealed to us now. Pastor Zagor, I gave a little intro of why you're special to me, but you're also special to many others and dear to the church at large. So if you would please introduce yourself and your given vocations. Well, I'm Pastor Bob Zagor. This is a fantastic thing, and Steph has been very dear to me for a long, long time. And Tiffany is a Tiffany is a treasure to the church. These are two of my favorite people in the entire universe. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's quite an intro for for us too. And not only that, but one of my vocations is husband, and my wife Gwen. She's hooked on your podcast too. She. She refers to it all the time. She just loves you guys. Well, we love Gwen, too. She's an amazing voice for life uh, throughout all kinds of work in her vocations. And yeah, Gwen is is fantastic. She was a a guest on one of our episodes and had a lot to say about God-parenting. She is really a fantastic Christian woman in all of her vocations, as as we're using the word. Interestingly enough, you the last person that you gave this the mic is yours or the floor is yours opportunity to um dr john plus is the one who conducted our wedding so you're just you're just looping through my life in sort of serpentine line i think that's what people call a small lutheran world i think when we had gwen on she had mentioned dr plus and katie's wedding unless i'm misremembering no my daughter katie who's the Mother of my only granddaughter, I have a grandson that's my son's child. That's his goddaughter, and he's now tried twice to be in her wedding and failed. Oh, <laughs> all because of all because of COVID and and other problems. She had a a really very unceremonious wedding during COVID because she decided to get married just as everything was shutting down. <laughs> Then a year later, we tried it again with a little more ceremony, and and once again, illness and travel plans caused caused Doctor Plus not to be able to join us, and he was supposed to participate in the wedding because he loves her and and we love him, and it was one of those things that you say you just live under the cross, even at times like that. Yeah, well, and there you go. You brought us back uh, seamlessly to. 
our topic, and uh, I have to be honest, I had not heard of a Lutheran theology of the cross until uh, I went to, to seminary to get my master's degree from there. And my very first class was called Lutheran theology. <laughs> and we talked about a theology of the cross. Um, and this is you know, up against what is considered a theologian of glory versus a theologian of the cross. And we will talk a little bit more about what those two terms mean in relation to each other. But uh, listeners who are tuning in and think a theology of the cross, I can kind of guarantee it's not exactly what you think it is in that we're not only talking about the crucifixion, what happened, of course, in the past, a historical event, but now how it applies to uh, those who are are baptized into Christ today. So, Pastor, um, let's just hop into it. Uh, when we talk about uh, the cross and Jesus Christ crucified, we as Christians, of course, call it good because the cross is the point at which Jesus uh, took on our sins and died as payment to redeem us. But when we're talking about a theology of the cross, we're talking about more than just that. How is the theology of the cross more than that? Well, it's a particularly Lutheran distinctive. It goes goes back to the early days of Lutheranism. Just after Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church, he got invited to a debate at the at in the city of Heidelberg. And in his reading, he started forming his theology, which was going to be used forever thereafter. And he made this distinction during that dispute between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. That's where we get these two terms. And a theology of glory, he said, is where we say that our works, our efforts, our accomplishments in life actually move forward our salvation or the kingdom of God. A theology of the cross says that, says that, our works are nothing but filthy rags and that we can't add anything to our salvation or to anyone's salvation and that any good that we accomplish is accomplished only by grace and that the cross is kind of an anti-worldly thing. All the cultures and all of the, all of the powers of the world are assembled in order to give somebody advantage, give somebody power, give somebody money. It's only the theology of the cross which says that there's some good in suffering. There's some good in opposing the way that the world gets its way. We've asked over the years, can we have a Christian war? Well, Christians can defend themselves. I'm not getting into the idea of whether whether Christians can defend themselves, but the idea is that if you asked Luther, he'd say, war is an earthly thing. It's the way that the earthly kingdoms get their way. How does Christ get his way? He gives himself into death instead of killing his enemies. It's an entirely otherworldly thing that breaks into our world. So when we talk about the theology of the cross, we're talking about the way that God would do things and the way that he's given them to us instead of the way that's natural to sinful people. Theologians of glory are always looking for some way to accomplish something, to be able to put themselves on display, to be able to say, yes, this was me. Look at what I was able to do. 
theologians of the cross rely on grace. And that was the big distinction that Luther made. His great statement that's usually given in Latin is, the cross tests all things. That's his hermeneutic, the sentence by which you interpret the scripture. If you don't see the work of Jesus' cross in it, then you don't understand it. If you don't understand the theology of the cross in it, you don't understand it. And among the bigger issues that we've got to face with the theology of the cross is something that we absolutely hate as sinful human beings, and that's that suffering has a point. It's not something to be avoided. And even more so, God doesn't tell you everything. And between those two, we just want to lose our minds. We, we keep wanting to answer questions that he doesn't answer. And we say, well, why doesn't God tell me? I just don't understand why he doesn't tell me what's going on or what I'm up to. Or I wish he would just say something to me about what it is. I don't understand. A theologian of the cross like Martin Luther would say, well, of course you don't understand. You're not God. That you, why question comes up all the time in yeah, times of suffering. It does. And if you were to go to Luther or a good, a good Lutheran theologian, they would say, you're asking the wrong question. By asking why, what you're really doing is saying that if God would explain it to me, I would understand it. I would be able to make sense out of this senselessness. That in itself is wrong. But if you say, God has made promises to me, and I understand his love and his work on the basis of what he's done for me in Jesus Christ on the cross, instead of on the way that I observe my outward circumstances, then you begin to understand where your hope is. Then you begin to understand where things start to make sense. But if you think about the irrationality of thinking that somehow or another we could understand it, God works together billions of lives over thousands of years. And there's no simple way to understand how any of these things connect. I mean, how many of us have our eyes blur over when we look at a, when we look at a math problem that's got a couple of different variables? <laughs> Imagine a math problem with billions of variables that go over the spread of thousands of years, and we say, I don't understand. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's exactly right. But the one who does loves you and sent his son to die for you. And that's the first answer to why you're asking the wrong question. I, I'm hearing a lot of really core um, understandings of, of um, our life in, in Christ. I mean, justification. This, is, mm -hmm. this isn't just a certain teaching you know, that you can kind of discard at, at, at will that you know, might be nice to learn about. This is, this is the core of our faith. Amen. Yes, exactly right. If you don't have this, and this is true, I'm not trying to put down any other denomination, and I, I know that there are believers in every place that the Word of God is proclaimed because the Holy Spirit creates faith through His Word. I'm not questioning any individual's faith, but it's the problem with denominational teaching and bad theology that anybody who doesn't embrace the theology of the cross will eventually get rid of justification by grace through faith alone. Hmm. They have to do it. There is no logical way to 
remain within that if you reject the theology of the cross. We find this evident in all theological systems, because you've got to be able to say why in some explanation apart from the cross. And that always leads you to an explanation apart from his word. God's revelation is the cross. And from that, you take everything that you understand and everything that you know. And then that that starts playing out in our lives. One of the first questions you asked me today was about our vocation. It's actually there within our vocation that the theology of the cross is met in every individual Christian's life. You think about what are you willing to suffer for? And what would your answers be? If I, I've got two of the most splendid ladies in the entire world sitting here within earshot of me, at least. <laughs> what would you be willing to suffer for? My kids, my husband. Okay, good. You just yeah. named your two great vocations, right? Mm-hmm. Steph, what would you be willing to suffer for? Same. Same. Okay. I would say nearly in that you know, order or um, husband, kids, family, close friends. Really, ideally, <laughs> the Christian should be willing to suffer for neighbor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How about the word of God? Yes. Okay. How about for the life of your neighbor? Mm-hmm. You see how those vocations play out. The theology of the cross always comes into connection with us if we're going to be good theologians with regard to our vocations. So you're going to look at our at your vocation and say, what is it that the Lord has called me to be, which is otherworldly, contraworldly, against the way that culture usually drives things? You can see some of the normative sins of our age that get evoked because people reject the theology of the cross. Their sexual promiscuity is justified how? What do people say in order to justify it? It's my life. I get to do whatever I want with it. It's my body. It's freedom. I get Mm -hmm. to have pleasure. What does God say about your body, your life, your neighbor, and the pursuit of pleasure? He doesn't say that any of those things are created to be evil, but our use of them in rejecting the good of our neighbor and rejecting the chastity that he's prepared for our human bodies so that we can be vocationally parents and spouses and his children, that's completely rejected. When people say they want to have children or they don't want to have children apart from that theology of the cross, What's the usual justification for wanting to have children? Desires, your own desires. Right. It's all about you. Theology of the cross says there are things so important in the world that I need to be willing to suffer for them. I need to be able to say this is more important than my pleasure. This is more important even than my life. And honestly, just from a practical point of view, I mean, I was a parish pastor for 28 years, so I, I do tend to think kind of practically about these things. From a practical point of view, if you can't find something important enough in your life that you're willing to suffer for it, or if you want rather to define your life by your pleasures, your drives, or who you want to sleep with, 
So you take either pole from that, you're going to end up despicable. A parent who makes their child something which is there to fulfill them has become despicable. And they turn their child into a god and ruin that kid. And I guarantee you that parents that turn their child into a god, somebody that they that they build their life around and build their universe around and and say, I'm going to find fulfillment in you. They're the parents who beat up umpires at Little League games. <laughs> They're the parents who attack teachers in the classroom that we often call helicopter parents and so on that come in and their kid does nothing wrong and their kid never has done anything wrong or how dare you say this about my kid. We make everything about our pleasure, everything about ourselves. Now you look at how Christ showed what love is. And what do you see? Yeah. Philippians, he emptied himself, taking on human flesh, made himself nothing, but acted as a servant and gave his life for all. Beautifully said mm -hmm. and beautifully quoted. And then you take that just a little bit further in that same quote. It says, after all of that suffering death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow under heaven and earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You take that verse that you said, and it starts with the suffering of Christ giving himself for the sake of the beloved. And it says his throne. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. His throne isn't that he is the creator of the universe and all things are in his hands. The throne that he chose, the throne that he now sits upon, is the throne of the one who suffered for the sins of the world and is redeemed. You look at the picture that, that the Apostle John gives us in the book of Revelation, and it says, And I looked upon the throne, and there was one who looked like a lamb that was slain. You don't find Jesus apart from the cross. And the reason is because you don't find love in the pursuit of pleasure. You find love in emptying yourself, giving yourself for the neighbor, for the beloved. That's very, very important. It's also why people don't understand the whole idea of submission in marriage. They miss the whole point, don't they? Right. So, I mean, you two are are no doubt perfect wives. <laughs> You're correct. No doubt. And, we leave and no I, room for doubt. <laughs> and I married one. So I, most of my experience with wives is perfection. So I, I'm only guessing about some of these things. <laughs> but you look at what you look at what Christ says about how husbands are supposed to treat their wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself in order to make her perfect, radiant, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That doesn't mean that she was, but it means that that's the aspiration, that's the goal, and it's going to take work, and it's going to take suffering in order to give them that. But that's what love does. And what about that submission? That submission that it talks about wives giving isn't for every man in the history of the world. You submit 
to the only person in the entire world that you say, the Lord has given to be worth it. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. That's exactly what you're promising. And that's all theology of the cross. As we have that in our minds, you can then take this to the point of the podcast, which is how does this interweave with life ministry? Let's start with some of the basics. You go to the doctor, you're expecting a baby, and the doctor says, this child is going to be born with a deformity, a birth defect, something like that. You need to abort it because it'll just lead a life of suffering, and it's going to be very hard on you. The, the desire to escape suffering comes up over and over in, in life issues. It's, it does. Uh, want to alleviate suffering. We don't, um, we don't like suffering. We don't want suffering. And if you think about it, there could be nothing more anti-Christian. We don't like suffering, but we don't hide from it as though it has no value, as though it has no point. The very point of our lives is that suffering does mean something. That, I guess, is difficult to expect from somebody who doesn't understand Jesus and doesn't understand the cross. So this isn't the kind of thing that you say at a right-to-life debate. This is the kind of mm -hmm. thing that you talk about as you're talking to good Christians, because they have to understand that when we speak of our, our sanctification, our life together in Christ, we don't escape suffering. Nobody in this sinful, fallen world escapes suffering. No matter how hard they try, and the harder they try to make their life without suffering, the more suffering they bring into their lives and the lives of others. Think about our drug problem in the U.S. I, I'm not sure that I actually like the phrase, but it, it speaks to our worldly condition. I had a psychologist who was talking to some folks about drug usage, and I think he may have actually come in and talked to your class when you were in middle school. And, my confirmation class, Stephanie, and he said, the first question I ask people is, what are you trying not to feel? And that's really the point of a lot of drug use, a lot of drunkenness, a lot of sexual exploration. You're trying to overwhelm your senses so that you're not actually feeling like you're in this world. You're trying to escape suffering and you bring more. However, if you say, there's a point to this, the theology of the cross and the cross that God gives to me is given to me out of love and love for my neighbor. It's worthwhile. It does something. It does something important. It does something salvific. The fact that God would share that cross with me means that I'm participating in the salvation of the world. And I don't have to go looking for the suffering. It's given to me within my vocation. I mean, I'm talking to Two great moms. One was talking about being covered with, what was it, grape jelly? Yes. <laughs> All over my arm. And how did you get yourself into that situation? I, I Just like any other day, making a peanut butter jelly sandwich for my three-year-old. To comfort your three-year-old because he was going through a rough health day, right? Well, yeah, no, the the baby is going through a rough health day. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So I and probably the reason I got jelly on myself was because I had to hold the baby while making a sandwich for the three year old girl. <laughs> so. <laughs> so 
the the point is, why would you go through that? I mean, aren't kids supposed to be there to give you pleasure? <laughs> why would you yeah. do that? Is there is there something of value in a mom being willing to even sacrifice everything for the sake of her children? Yeah. Well, I have to say absolutely, or else my whole life doesn't make sense right now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and it's our expectation deep down inside, isn't it? Don't even the pagans look with crossed eyes at a mom who puts herself in front of her children. We understand at a very deep emotional, probably created level, something that transcends even the dramatic fall that we've experienced, that real love has to do with sacrifice, being, being willing to suffer for the sake of something better, being willing to suffer for the sake of the beloved. In fact, that's the very definition of what love is giving yourself for the sake of the beloved. That's not just a philosophy of life. It flows right into the very attributes of God. You look at the scripture. The scripture says, Dear children, love one another, for love is from God, and God is love. It isn't just something that God wants to be. It doesn't say God is loving. It says that love is is an attribute of God. If you want to understand it, you've got to understand him. So how does he choose to define himself? We can tell by the names he picks out for himself, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And what does he call himself? Father, son. What does he call the church? His bride. <laughs> Suddenly you begin to realize these are the very vocations that we bear. These aren't strange or odd to us. Why would he, why would he pick names that describe us to describe himself? <laughs> and that goes to the theology of the cross, too. I'm not turning this into a catechism quiz or something, but tell me, why would he pick names that describe us to describe himself? Uh, because we're not God. We're, we're creatures. Um, so we can't fathom the mind of God. I, I think he bears in himself our humanity and in Christ himself, of course, because he took up human flesh. And uh, I believe it's Martin Luther who uh, talked about God uh, lisping to us or, or speaking mm -hmm. in, in ways that our human mind can comprehend. And perhaps in, in some fashion um, by calling himself names that we ourselves uh, consider um, us to be in relation to others. We can in some way grasp, even have the chance to grasp what it is that, that God is and has given himself for the salvation of the world. You just did a great job with that. Now, <laughs> let, me, let me try to make it a, a, a little more practical based on what we said, because you did just do a great job with it. And you used all the right words too. So we were talking at the beginning about how often in, in life issues, the question why comes up and why, what are all associated with it. And then God starts calling him by the same names that we have in our vocation. And that's where the cross and suffering start connecting to us. And if we understand that we're not just there as reflections of ourselves, reflections of our virtue, but if we're actually pictures of him as we're in that spot, 
in our vocation, then the most sense that it can possibly make starts unfurling in front of you. Why would God die for a sinner? Well, I can't understand that until I start thinking of myself as a father or a son or a brother. Then all of a sudden, my vocation unfurls before me and God has revealed something to me that isn't natural knowledge because I don't know him as father by natural knowledge. I don't know him as son by natural knowledge. Why has he given us the church, which seems to be something that false religions desire to be, desire to control, people want the money, people want the buildings, people want the, want the power that goes along with it. We don't think we have much power, but anything that collects thousands and millions of adherents every Sunday around the world has real power that we tend to overlook because it is an earthly power. They want it. Why do they want it? Because the bride of Christ has great beauty that was bestowed on her, given to her, and she's been declared beautiful by her husband, Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to to make her a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, where our vocations meet, God starts explaining himself. Not just with the words of Scripture, which certainly is the baseline for all of it, but through our actual experience. We begin understanding love. We begin understanding the importance and the value of people in our lives, even sinners. If your children, ladies, were involved in a great sin that threatened their lives, would you still be willing to sacrifice yourself to save them? Yes, I think so. How about your husbands? If they were involved in something terrible, would you risk your life to save them? Yes. Yes then you understand God more deeply than anybody in the world apart from the theology of the cross possibly could. Hmm. How about old people who are just using up medical resources, Mm. laying in a bed, their lives have no value. They, they have no, they have no quality of life. What do we say about that? Suddenly we realize if you're valuing them by what they can do for you, That's not a theology of the cross, is it? No. That's a theology of glory. What can I get out of them? What pleasure can I get out of them? What labor can I get out of them? What utility can I get out of them? Instead of, do I love them? Am I willing to give of myself for them the definition of love? It's not a mistake that at the end of life, we've got to take care of parents and grandparents and our and our sick and infirm neighbors. It's part of the divine plan. And it's the way that love is genuine. Scripture says, let love be genuine. Love always, without exception, has a cost because love always has a cross. If we don't understand that, then we don't understand love. And what we're giving, thinking that we're giving love, is not love. There, Pastor, you also circled back to how we started 
uh, which is that the cross lets God be God. <laughs> and a theologian of glory is in opposition to that. It, it's making man look good and really God look bad. Or wanting to even design how we want God to look and act. Yeah, and that's certainly the big sin of all of all false teaching. We're making a God after our image rather than the other way around. And that's a tremendous point, Tiffany, because it really is important that the Christian be conformed to the image of Christ rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. And the cross is what does that. Is there any definition of Jesus that doesn't include a cross? You've got a false Christ then. Is there any definition of a Christian life, especially a Christian life well-lived and sanctified, that doesn't include a cross? You've got a false life and a false ambition, and it's going to end in futility. In fact, Paul even uses that word when he describes it, right? I declare to you that you shall not live the futile life given to you by your forefathers. What does futility mean? No matter what you do, it's not going to end well. What about, a, what about a life lived under the cross? You suddenly begin to understand these odd statements made by the Lord, for example, when he calls St. Paul and he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Well, what kind of job interview is that? <laughs> yeah. The apostles get beaten by the Sanhedrin because they healed a man who was begging in the temple. The Sanhedrin decides they're going to let them go, but they're going to beat them first. You know, that's the way the world uses power. They try to force their way on other people. And if they can't force their way on them, they try to make sure that they don't talk. And they say, you are never to speak in this name again. We see that in our culture today, right? Mm-hmm. It, isn't, it isn't that I disagree with you and these are the reasons why. You are not permitted to speak those words. You can't say those things out loud. Because the words of God always have power. The apostles go back after that beating, and in the midst of what looks like a church service, they thank God that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. You want to talk about, you know, anti-worldly or otherworldly. A sales pitch for joining the movement of Jesus would be, uh, hey, come follow Christ. You're about to suffer and die. (laughs) It's not a really (laughs) good sales pitch. This is what makes Lutheran theology so distinct and, in my opinion, beautiful is that it's different than a lot of other denominations and how they would do theology because Christianity is this way of escaping my suffering and, and pain. Um, but Lutherans say no. <laughs> no, the sales pitches come suffer and and um, and die for for your neighbor and they're in. Um, the cross has done its work on you. It makes us unafraid of suffering, is what it does. We don't think of it as something strange and abnormal. The world thinks of any suffering, any pain, any hardship that people suffer as something abnormal that needs to be avoided, right? We think of it as part of the job. Everybody suffers, but we say there's a purpose behind it. There's a calling behind it. There's a divine goal that ends in salvation. That's a That's a wonderful thing to be able to understand that we're not going through this randomly. This this is really important because in 
um, throughout history, there have been times um, Christians have gotten this wrong on the other side too. Like they've, they've gone off the rails on the other side mm-hmm. and asceticism. Um, they've actually inflicted yeah. suffering upon themselves. Sure, sure. Yeah. And and even in the early church, we had those we had those folks who sought out martyrdom. Mm-hmm. They they didn't have to die for their faith. They chose to. They they thought that somehow or another it was going to be ennobling, and then. And then we got into the big controversies in the early church because some people were kicked out because they they were doing the wrong thing. They had turned against the Lord. They they had avoided suffering. So they brought letters from alleged martyrs saying, "Hey, we're they're okay. I I'm holy. I'm holier than the pastor." And I say these people should be part of the church. And that that has a lot to do with the development of the cult of the saints. It's it's just a we always mess it up, but our suffering can't be something that we seek. It isn't something that we give to Jesus. It's something that comes to us in the exercise of our vocation. And any suffering that comes to you apart from the exercise of your vocation probably <laughs> is the consequence of your sin. <laughs> Tiffany, you, you bringing that up kind of hits on two points where I can think of people, you know, questioning this, you know, theology of the cross. Well, if, if the cross is how Christ does his work and reveals himself, then go seek that out and somehow obtain more glory, more favor. And then we're right back in the position where theologians of the cross begin. So as Pastor said, we don't go seeking crosses that they're given to us through our vocations. And so by remaining simply faithful in our vocations, Christ will do the work of the cross in us and through us in in those ways. And Pastor, you had mentioned too, really the, the theology that Luther unpacked being the hidden will of God versus the revealed will of God. And that you said that there is a purpose to suffering, but if I might clarify or add, we don't always get the right to know that purpose. The asking the why question isn't the right question, as you had said. And that's attempting to peer behind the curtain mm-hmm. to see what God's up to when we don't get that that right to do that. Well, and it goes beyond right. We just wouldn't know what we were looking at if we could see behind the curtain. But you remember back when Moses said, I want to see your glory, God. God says, I'm going to put you in a rock and I'm going to shroud you under there. And then I'm going to pass by one. And I have no idea what he means by the backside of his glory. So he's got Moses buried there. And and so that that was as close as Moses could get to looking on him, which, if anything, I guess, points out the fact that if we looked behind the curtain, not only wouldn't we see it, but we wouldn't find love. Because there, seeing God in his glory, I think we'd respond the way that Isaiah did when he saw God in his glory and said, Whoa, yeah. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord God. You have all of these theophanies in the Old Testament. And the reaction of people is, Oh, now I'm going to die. <laughs> yes. Because even in his veiled glory, it was too much to see. So, it isn't something we can do, but intuitively, this is something that we all understand because people are always willing to suffer for something that they really love. Stephanie probably 
heard me use this in a sermon as an illustration because I used it all the time. If I took on an average church parking lot a hundred million pounds of steaming fresh dung and dumped it there and said, somewhere in that pile, there's a one pound bar of gold. Do you think I could do anything to keep people out of that pile? People are willing to go through anything for what they really love, right? Yes. But I think it talks, unfortunately, about the hearts of sinful people, what they're willing to sacrifice for and what they're not, what they're willing to give of themselves for and what they're not. Hmm. And it's, it's one way that we should call ourselves up as we're preparing for church and about to hear the absolution. What have I been willing to sacrifice for and what am I not? Because I think that's a that's a very good diagnostic question. In finishing, how does this theology of the cross, how does it free us from an obsession of self and then free us toward our neighbor? Well, let's start with focus. If you're always focused on what does it mean for me, you're always bound to yourself, which makes your world very small. If you say, what do all of these things mean and how does God feel about me and what is the point of my life? And you read that off of the cross of Jesus. What was God willing to do to save me? What was his statement of his love for me? And you look at the cross, you begin to, you begin to understand yourself far beyond the navel gazing that we so often engage in where we're saying, well, I don't see my talents. I don't see what I've got. I got She's so pretty and I'm not pretty. She's so talented and I'm not talented. He's got a great singing voice and I don't have a great singing We're We're always looking for some quality in other people. And, and so often we just pick out one to diminish ourselves or to aggrandize ourselves. No, I may not be much of a singer, but at least I don't borrow my neighbor's lawnmower and never return it. <laughs> we'll, find, we'll find something about ourselves because we want to justify ourselves. We want to say we're good people, but you've got the ultimate statement of what's good. And it doesn't have to be defined by our works, which frees us because we've got the cross of Christ. And then we can say, but did he just save me so that I can linger here until my death? No, you've got a, you've got many vocations that you fulfill and many of them are names that God has given you and that he shares with you. And that talks about the purpose of your life, because if this is so important a job that even God uses the name to describe himself, then you've got a real purpose and a real future in that purpose. You can't, you can't deny the grandeur of it and you engage appropriately in a theology of glory. You're not looking for it in yourself. You're not trying to say, I'm special because of my works or my accomplishments. You're saying, I'm special because I've been called by the Lord of the universe by this name. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm a bride. I'm whatever. There are hundreds of vocations given in the scripture. And that frees you to live a life of purpose and significance. That frees you to live a life which is no longer bound by self and ruined by your worst moments and defined by the worst thing that you've ever done. Your sins are forgiven. 
and you're given daily access to the Lord who tells you to call him Father. That's an amazing thing. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor, for joining me and my favorite co-host. This was a lot of fun. Well, it's great being with you. This is great review for for me after seminary to remind me really of the first class of my seminary experience with Dr. Sanchez that helped me to fall in love again with Lutheran theology. You know, not only was the great Martin Luther uh, onto something in 1518 with his this Heidelberg disputation and this this discourse, but as you've shown us today, this is a very practical theology that applies at, at ground level. This is not to be kept at a heady level, but it is to be used on, on the ground and in love towards our neighbor. And thank you again for for joining us, Pastor and Tiffany. And of course, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life. 